and welcome to another episode of For the Love of Sports. My name is Michael Raziel, and this is the show where I get to have conversations with people in business and in sports and everything that happens in between. Today, my illustrious guest, I have Joe Favorito. He is an independent sports entertainment and branding consultant, as well as a professor at Columbia University. Joe, how you doing today, man? Thanks, Michael. Great. Happy, happy, happy to have you here. Professor at Columbia, I think that adds a little extra cachet to the name. I think that'll be fun to talk about too. But Joe, uh, Joe has actually formerly worked with the Knicks, USTA, WTA Tour, the 76ers, Fordham. He's on SI's Must Follows for 2020, an associate producer of musicals and plays, um, including Tony-nominated um, plays, which again is pretty darn cool. But Joe, the first question I have for everybody on the For the Love of Sports podcast is, why do you love sports so much? Um, I love the storytelling. I think that's the biggest and the most important thing. Um, sport is always the thing that unites us. Um, I, I enjoy entertainment as well, but um, you know, there's very few things that you can talk about uh, and find a common ground with anywhere in the world, uh, usually than the passion of something about sports. Uh, politics divides us, sports unites us. That's the way I like to look at it. I do like that. I would say sports would divide me with anybody from Philadelphia, but I can totally understand where you're coming from there. But I think it is really interesting, right? Fan is short for fanatic. Uh, people forget that. And it really does unite a group of people. If I see someone wearing a Mets jersey, we're immediately friends because we can have we can commiserate together and we can talk about how terrible we have it as as we usually do. And, and you bring up the storytelling aspect of sports. And obviously, that's a huge part of the PR side of it. So I guess, at what point did you realize that the storytelling aspect of sports was something that you could literally turn into an entire career and spend, you know, the next 40, 50 years doing something that you truly did love? Um, I don't know. I, th I think it was just something that, you know, um, I mean, I would say as far back as sixth grade, maybe I was always, you know, I was, I played every sport. I'd broken almost every bone in my body. I was never great at any playing any of them, but I knew I wanted to do something around sports. Um, you know, I had a passion for listening to great announcers, uh, you know, Marv Albert growing up. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's just something that you felt like you wanted to be involved with. I was lucky to be to develop relationships, go to school uh, and have people kind of take me under my wing at the beginning um, who led me along a path that, to this day, I still don't know where it's going to go next, um, but I think that's kind of the beauty of the business that we're in. Um, and it really is not just sports, but it's entertainment, it's media, um, but it all comes down to really listening and finding good stories. That's the most important thing. I think good stories resonate everywhere, right? Like we are human beings, are storytellers. That's how we've passed down. So like that for thousands of years. That, that hasn't changed at all. I mean, millions of years, probably, you know, the gatherers and the storytellers, you know, for thousands of years were the ones who've set the path for everybody else going forward. So that, that hasn't changed. I actually think it's more important today to be able to enunciate a story uh, and to kind of build your own story and figure out how you fit in a narrative than ever before because of the digital social media and the fact that, you know, everything we do is global right now. Everything. It, it, it is insane. And in fact, what the media does and, and you know, how, how it works. I mean, we're seeing more and more, un unfortunately or fortunately, depending on, on how you look at it. As you were saying, you know, politics divides us and we're starting to see media really kind of it, it comes down to clicks, unfortunately, in most situations, mm -hmm. and it comes down to driving ad revenue and, and all of these things. So you're always going for those clickbait headlines. You're always trying to go. And I'm not saying you, of course, I'm just saying, you know, the colloquial you. How have you been able to personally deal with that, you know, over time, you know, coming from a very um, traditional background, considering when you started and how you started to where we are now with with Twitter and social media? How have you kind of seen that? emergence or evolution of media and how have you tried to stay true to your roots or, or have you pretty much just said, you know what, Hey, roll with the punches. Well, you adapt or you get rolled over. I mean, that that's really what it is. I mean, you could go back to every time there was a, you know, a pivot in the media world, you know, go back to the printing press, you know, everything that came along was going to disrupt and end the world as we knew it. You know, radio was going to ruin sports. Television was going to ruin ticket sales for Broadway. Um, you know, the internet was going to ruin things. Talk radio was going to ruin things. Um, you know, social media was going to ruin things. None of it ruins anything. It depends on how you figure out how to adapt the tools that you have, whether they're, you know, a printing press and a blacksmith or, 
you know, um, TikTok and you figure out how, how in the, the, the world that you're in and the, the involvement of the business that you're in at the time, how do you adapt those to tell stories? And whether those stories are people standing on the other side of your lawn, six feet apart, or whether there's someone in Beijing, the story doesn't really matter as much. It's, it's the means that changes. So that's, that's the beauty, I mean, uh, of the world we're in right now. I mean, you know, and, and it evolves so fast, the, the beauty of being around students, whether they're high school students or college students or grad students, or just people that you meet, the, the ability to continue to learn is really, really important. So um, I don't care how old you are, you should continue to try and take something away from every day and figure out what did you learn today and be able to not only just learn for yourself, but to figure out how you can pass it on in a proactive way to other people. 100% agree with that learning. I mean, I know it's like a huge cliche, you know, if you learn something, it's a good day. I think Jimmy V said that um, in his famous speech. But with that, I mean, like understanding how these things work and learning about them, right? You bring up TikTok. So one, I got to ask, what is your TikTok handle so everyone out there can follow? I don't really, I mean, I, you know, I, <laughs> I, I, I have a, an account. I don't use it really. I mean, I'm not I'm kidding. I'm not really don't enjoying by TikTok. I understand how TikTok works. I understand how Pinterest works. Um, I understand how Snap works, but uh, when you're into more long-form storytelling, it, I'm more of an observer with those platforms than I am an active participant, if that yes. helps. I was kidding. I, I apologize if it didn't come yeah. off too, obviously. But um, no, TikTok's not my thing either. It makes me pretty uncomfortable and I don't really want to be there. But I do understand how it works, and I think that's the important part. And as you say, with with the, the long-form storytelling again that that's kind of your lane but as we said you know evolving with all these mediums it becomes shorter and shorter and shorter and you know at twitter was 140 now we're at 280 characters how do you get those stories across because telling them has to be a little different when you're given different parameters correct not really i mean you know we live in a visual world now you can attach video to anything that you want to do um, and hope that you come up with the right words to drive attention and do the story justice. So it doesn't really, again, I, I don't think much has changed. Uh, I think the medium has changed. The attention spans have changed. Uh, but the basic thing is people love good stories. And that that's the most important thing. It's something that they take away. They're able to relate to other people. There is still water cooler talk. It's probably Zoom talk now. But, um, uh, you know, I, I don't think that's changed at all. I, I think you know, the ability to listen and tell a story and listening is a huge part of, of being an effective storyteller are, are really the things that are invaluable. I, I completely agree. That's something that I practice every single time I do one of these, just try and do active listening and actually hear what someone says, take that mm -hmm. in and then come up uh, with with the following question. And, and with that, you know, how how have you learned how to do that? Right. Like you've, you've had all these different careers. You've had all these careers. It, it's, it's like, how do you know how to breathe? I mean, yeah. I, it's really not, um, it's, it's, it's evolving a, a narrative. I mean, it, it doesn't really, it's not something that you can say like, you know, how do you use a fork? Well, you just kind of learn how to do it. You know, I, I mean, um, I think there are some people that will show you along the way as to what's proper and you can take things away and be able to absorb those things. Um, you know, good writing skills, good listening skills, good speaking skills, um, the ability to, to use all visual forms of visual media to tell a story. Um, you know, you learn it over time. That's what being a good student is. And I think, you know, that that's the value of the world we're in right now is you can learn so much at your fingertips and you can create more stories with fewer barriers to entry now than have ever been before. And people say, well, you know, media has changed and the media is, is, you know, against us or the media is biased. Well, in reality, anybody who owns a mobile device is the media. So there is nobody um, who doesn't have the ability to tell a story to a specific audience that they want to reach if they want to do it. And the question is, do you want to put the time and the effort into it? Do you want to be able to explore the opportunities that you have out there? And then do you want to be able to maximize the windows that you have to tell a story or insert yourself into a narrative? It's pretty simple. It is pretty simple. And I hope people rewind that part just to re-listen to it because Joe's dropping some very, very good knowledge here. And and let's take it back to the beginning a little bit. One of your first jobs, um, or at least it was on, on the list of LinkedIn, one of your first jobs, you were assistant AD at your alma mater of Fordham. Um, so was this assistant uh, director of um, athletic director? Did this have some sort of communications, I'm assuming? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it over all the communications. That was actually, I mean, there were 
some pretty interesting stops way before that. But uh, tell me, what's your favorite one? You got uh, I'll I'll list. I mean, you can't even get into some of the, some of the places. Like, I mean, you won't know what sports phone was, but I mean, before the internet, before talk radio, there was only one way to get scores, and you would literally pick up your phone and dial nine seven six one three one three, and on the other end was a taped audio for ninety seconds with every score going on at that time in that market. So uh, nationally, so. You know, I was one of, I don't even know, dozens of people, many, many of whom are, are common names today. Bob Papa, Kenny Albert, um, Rich Ackerman. Uh, there were so many people that worked at Sports Phone back in the day in the in the mid 80s uh, who launched their careers, you know, literally sitting in a booth for seven hours at a time, just constantly updating scores. So that was a lot of fun. Um, you know, I worked at Sports Channel, which was the, the precursor to um all the regional networks and was there at a really pivotal time when the Yankees went off broadcast TV for the most part and went onto cable for the first time. I was there literally the day that it started. I remember exactly where I was when Susan Waldman came on as the first voice at WFAN. Um, you know, I was 87, 88, I guess. And then, uh, yeah, then eventually I made it back to Fordham uh, and was there for five years and then went to the Sixers after that. And it's kind of, you know, been a bunch of stops and starts and places over the years. That's baseball, Susan. That mm. is baseball, Susan. So, um, you know, all of those stops do sound like a lot of fun, and it sounds like you've met some pretty incredible people, especially much, much earlier on in their career. But with the opportunity to was was the opportunity at Fordham something that you jumped at because you went to school there, or was it just an opportunity the the, the job, the career, the position, some uh, you know, a path you want to take your your career in? Well, it's funny. I, I don't think any of the steps were planned. They were a lot of them actually were st- were jobs. They were created for me to go and take, um, or, or they were going to organizations that were pretty well known at very bad times. So uh, the goal in most of the places was to kind of reinvent what they were doing or advance what they were doing in terms of storytelling and finding new stories and creating new relationships and advancing whatever the news of the day or the year or the half a decade were and, and figuring out new ways to do it to grow the brand that you were working for. So, I mean, I was, you know, when I worked at Iona College right out of school as um, sports information director, I was the youngest SID at the division one level. When I got to the NBA at 29 with the Sixers, which was probably too early because I still had a lot more to learn. Um, I was the youngest uh, PR director in the NBA at the time. So, um, you know, I look back now at the people that I met then and where they are now. And it's pretty amazing to see, not just where I was, but where I was at a a point in time at an age where, you know, I look at somebody like Jerry Stackhouse, who's had an illustrious career and we drafted when I was at the Sixers, but is really only five years younger than me, which is kind of bizarre. So, um, you know, like I said, was at a lot of really interesting places um, at some really challenging times, but every time, you know, one step led to the next, I just never knew where those steps were going to go. I still don't. Yeah, and that's that's probably the the beauty of it, right? We're kind of just uh, flying by the seat of our pants if something comes up. I try and say yes well, to as many things as I can, to be honest with you. It's the beauty and it's the challenge. I think people like structure in their lives a lot. And I think uh, especially since March 12th, a lot of that structure has been thrown away and people have had to readapt. Um, you know, but I've been used, I've been social distancing and working on my own at, from home for 12 years. So, you know, I was kind of one of the first ones thrown into the consultant pool. I was literally thrown in. I wasn't I didn't jump in. Somebody pushed me in. Um, a couple of people pushed me in. And, um, you know, you sink or you swim. So I'm a, I'm a big believer in, you know, you you make what you have and you keep moving it forward. You know, no one gives you anything. You know, you have to go and figure out how to get it. That was actually going to be one of my questions, if it was your decision or someone else's. And I think we can get to that in a, in a little bit because I think that's an important part of the conversation. But with um, – Understanding, you brought up a point. I'm just kind of curious uh, for everybody out there listening to to get the answer. You said, you know, at 29, you were a little too young potentially for that 76ers job. Maybe it wasn't the right time for you. How like, to some to another 28, 29 year old, 30 year old out there that gets this incredible opportunity to be the PR director, the youngest PR director in the NBA at the time? Like, it's hard to say no to that, right? So, what were some? Yeah, of the- that's what. I- so, what were some of the things that you learned that maybe you can kind of share a little wisdom with them? So. They can at least have a couple extra letters down the uh, down the pipeline. I think one of the things that's important is you have to be comfortable being uncomfortable, and you have to take yourself, no matter where you are, out of your comfort zone uh, and get used to it. Especially in in the world we're in today, 
you know, you may be able to have to reassess your skills and figure out what you're going to do to reinvent yourself time and time again. Um, I think that when you sometimes at an early age think that the job defines you when in reality you define, you know, the job or the school or wherever it is that you are. Um, it's nice to say I'm so-and-so from somewhere and you think that you have a hammer, uh, but, you know, you have to use that hammer as a velvet hammer. You can't really use it to go and crack skulls as much as you'd like. Um, and I think that, you know, there were learning experiences. I, I was, I've been in a lot of places where there was no mentor to say, do this or don't do that. You're just kind of thrown in and say, okay, go do it. Um, I think that's really hard to do. I, I think going to seek people out and, and using empathy and humility to try and grow not only what you do, but what they do and who they are as people is, is probably the most valuable tool that you can get. I try and help as many people and I try and ask as many people for help. Um, and maybe, maybe this is one of the ways I get to do it by just asking you a bunch of questions. Hopefully I can learn from it. Hopefully a couple of the people listening to, I think it's very important that they can listen to it as well. So, so you worked with the 76ers for a little while, as you said, as one of the youngest PR mm -hmm. directors in the NBA. I mean, especially back then. So this is a little while ago. Was this late eighties? No, it was uh, mid nineties, mid nineties. All right. So NBA was, becoming i mean michael jordan was there everything was starting to really get going i mean we know in the early 80s if i'm not mistaken we hear about it all the time you know the finals used to be on tape delay this that and the other thing well now more michael jordan's there and nba is as big as it probably ever has been compared to now what was that like like how did you go and learn on the job what were you doing like, well, we, just we, kinda... we sucked the three years i was there so <laughs> I was there in the time between Literally the time between Charles Barkley and Allen Iverson. So, oh, geez. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the, the, the original kind of trust the process. Um, but, you know, one of the lessons that I learned there and, and in other places and continue to learn is, you know, if you listen, there's amazing stories out there, regardless of the results on the field or on the court or on the ice. Uh, and you got to figure out how to tell those stories and put them in the right places. So that's really what we were able to do. Um, you know, three great years of, of learning in Philadelphia, friends that I still have to this day. Um, but, you know, learned some hard lessons too. And, um, it was interesting. We got to do some amazing things, retired Maurice Cheeks's Jersey and close the spectrum and, uh, you know, create some programs that the NBA uses to this day. So that was, you know, a lot of fun. And like I said, there are people, there's, I think three people left in, at the Sixers now who were there from when I was there and I'm still friends with them. And, you know, it's, it's been an interesting ride. So. That is pretty cool. That is pretty cool. Lifelong friends, obviously. Mm -hmm. uh, that is that's pretty important. And then, so as you said, most of the positions that you've received have been positions created for you to take. So with the uh, the WTA tour and the USTA, what what were those positions that someone said, Joe, we want you to work here so bad? Here you go, create your own position and run with well, it. Well, actually, that's not really what it was. It was there were jobs that were created that they thought I could fill. So okay. um, it's not like you were just kind of pulled out of the sky. It's it's you know. People recruit you and you go against other people and they have to figure out who the best cultural fit is and who's got the best ideas and how they can, how you can help them get ahead. I mean, that's the nature of hiring. So, um, you know, WTA was interesting. I had, had been let go from the Sixers when the owners, new owners came in. Um, and through people that I had met, including um, a guy who works in the industry now, uh, Mark Beal, who was my graduate assistant at Fordham. Um, he was working for a PR firm in the city and he called me and he said, um, you know, the Women's Tennis Association is looking for a head of PR. Would you be interested? And uh, there was another guy at the NBA at the time, a friend of mine named Peter Land. Uh, he knew people at the WTA and, you know, it kind of worked out really well. I, I was able to take a job, um, move back. To, we actually moved back to the house that we owned in Rockland County um, that we had rented out for three years while we were in Philadelphia. Um, and the job was in Stanford, Connecticut, across from where the WWE is, right off of I-95. Uh, and I got there at a time where literally women's tennis had just about stopped and people were trying to figure out where it was going to go. Um, but I knew that there were, if we listened to the players, there'd be a lot of really interesting stories that were going to be told. And we literally did that in a room at the French Open. Billie Jean King was sitting next to me and we went around the room and um, we had my staff, which was a global staff at the time. We probably had 12 people at that point from everywhere from um, Spain and the UK to Australia, uh, Florida, all over the place, um, our, global, our global staff. And we, um, we sat there and we went around the room and we had, you know, in the room at that point where, you know, I guess Venus Williams was 17, Serena was 16, 
Uh, Anna Kornikova was 16. Uh, Martina Hingis was 17. Uh, we had Steffi Graf, who was coming back from an injury. Monica Sellis was coming back from a stabbing. Um, we had Gabriela Sabatini and Mary Pierce and Conchita Martinez and Gigi Fernandez and Mary Jo Fernandez. And we went around the room and we asked them all to tell us their story. And, and my, I still have the notepads, the long legal pads that I, that I've kept over the years. And, you know, they would go around and Conchita Martinez would say, I like wine. And, you know, we knew that she was a good athlete and we looked into it and, you know, probably six months later, she was on the cover of Wine Spectator. And then I'll never forget Martina Hingis uh, said, I want to be the first female athlete on the cover of GQ. Uh, and 18 months later, Martina Hingis was the first female athlete on the cover of GQ, not just because she was a great athlete and was the youngest number one at the time at 18, um, but she was also a pretty interesting story. So, um, you know, those are the type of things that I think we evolved over the course of the three years I was at the WTA. Um I remember the last U.S. Open, which I guess was 99, that I was at the USTA, at the WTA. I walked out onto 57th Street in Manhattan. We were staying at the Park Meridian Hotel, and there was a newsstand. And on the side of the newsstands, they list all these magazine covers, you know, that you've always seen. Mm-hmm. For people who actually walk by newsstands these days. Uh, and there were 14 covers, and 11 of them were women's tennis players. So I knew that we had done a pretty good job at that point. Congrats. And then I went to the US, USTA, and they had created a new position basically – to take the business of the U.S. Open and take it from a two-week event in Flushing Meadows, Queens, and make it into a global event and tell the stories of the brands and the athletes, uh, the celebrities and the entertainment. And we did that pretty well for two years. We created a TV show that I helped produce on uh, CBS called Top Spin, which was all about kids in tennis. We created an event which still uh, lives to this day, Arthur Ashe Kids Day, which you know um, united very young rising tennis stars with really interesting music personalities. So we had, and put it on CBS in an hour and a half show, combining both tennis and music. So we had, you know, um, uh, O-Town and Britney Spears and Jessica Simpson. Um, all your favorites, um, I bet, right? 98 Degrees, all when they were just breaking through, combined with, you know, some of the young talent, Andy Roddick and James Blake and, um, Roger Federer, and you know it's you know something that grew to this day. You know, it probably I, I don't think Kids Day will happen this year, obviously, but um, you know for 20 years it's been something that's been pretty cool. And you know, I left there uh, September of 2001. You know, we created a bunch of programs. I got a call from the Knicks. The Knicks were looking for a new head of communications um, to really unite the business and the entertainment, the business and the basketball side, because mm-hmm. two people who ran those pieces, Jeff Van Gundy on the basketball side, Anuka Brown Sanders on the business side, didn't really get along. So we had to kind of come in and, and figure out how to put all that together. And, you know, I was there for seven seasons and, you know, we made the playoffs once we got swept by the nets, but we built some amazing programs and I got to work with a lot of really, I mean, one, two, at least three hall of fame coaches. So, um, you know, scores of players and, um, you know, had a great experience there. And then, you know, after Larry Brown's first season, which was 2007, um, we realized that we kind of, the job had changed and it really wasn't what I wanted to do anymore. Um, we kind of split up and, um, a friend of mine, a couple of weeks later came along and said, we're launching this thing called mixed martial arts. Uh, the UFC was just starting to get going and we created a, kind of a parallel business that could do a lot of things that they couldn't do. Um, we raised $35 million in the public markets. We took two and a half years. We went through $35 million in the public markets. Um, a lot of lessons learned there. And actually today is, what is today? Today is 29th of July. So we ended at July 28th, 12 years ago. And, uh, uh, and we sold the assets to the UFC and, you know, kind of went on from there. That is, it's it's a pretty impressive list of companies that you've worked with and for, and you know, obviously some at the highest possible level, some obviously with that last one um, at the kind of startup level almost. And and with each of these, I guess aside from the last one, you know, with with the US uh, or the WTA, with the USTA, with the Knicks, with the Sixers, as you said, you've created programs that have now lasted years and years and years and years. What is it like being able to leave your legacy, leave your mark within a sport, within within a team, within a league, to know that you know something you did in two thousand and one is still alive and well today, 
you know, sans what you obviously were going through with this pandemic, that it would still be going on today, unhitched, un- unhinged, just because it was some it was a great idea back then. And it has kind of standed the test of time a little bit. Well, I, I, first of all, I don't think I did anything on my own. You always have to be around great people. And, um, you know, sometimes you come up with the ideas. Sometimes other people come up with the ideas. Sometimes you do it together. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's nice. I mean, I, I don't think I don't look back and say, you know, well, how come I haven't been invited to, you know, a Knicks reunion or a Sixers reunion? Um, you know, that really wasn't my place. Um, but, you know, you look back and, you know, if everything goes correct um you know at some point in the next couple of days tom thibodeau is going to be named the coach of the knicks and i was with tom both in philadelphia and new york and we texted back and forth on sunday so i mean that's you know it's those type of things that uh that are impactful but i think the most impactful thing is kind of the random emails or calls or texts you get from people who you didn't even remember that you were helping along the way and and they turn around and say you know you may not remember this but or you put something in your newsletter and I got that job. Or I remember in your class, you told us this and this is how I got to where I am today. That, frankly, is much more gratifying to me than any kind of, you know, Arthur Ashe Kids Day, mm-hmm. Sweetwater Clifton, you know, um, community community award for the Knicks, you know, much more, much more gratifying because that shows that, you know, you were able to intentionally or unintentionally impact people's lives. And that's kind of what we're supposed to be doing. As, as we talked about before, you know, it's showing showing that uh, ability to help others to to take that information, as you said, but more importantly, not to just ask for help, but take that help and then pass it along to others, which it seems like you're pretty darn good at doing there, Joe. And, you know, we appreciate you coming on for a couple minutes and spreading a little extra wisdom with us. I think it's going to be um, it so far has been great. Just a couple a uh, couple more topics I want to get through before I let you go. I do want to hop back to the Knicks for a second. So you were um, the vice president of PR, as you said, you kind of married two aspects of the business and without being too frank how why do the knicks i'm not i'm a mets fan too so i'll put my hand up and say the mets always do the wrong thing we can kind of point to it it's very obvious what is it about the knicks why is it always is it new york media is it the knicks is it the management why does it always seem like the knicks continuously do the wrong thing day in and day out when especially when it comes to to communicating with the fans, communicating with the players. Obviously we had the Charles Oakley incident a couple of years ago. We had the, um, the incident with George Floyd this year where it took the Knicks. They were the only team that didn't say anything for an extra like two weeks or whatever. And all their players are like, what the hell are we doing? What is it about the Knicks that they just continuously stick their foot in their mouth? Well, I, I think it depends on how you define success. Okay. Um, the world of sports and entertainment and media are defined on one pretty stark idea. How do you make money? You know, what is the impact that you have? But at the end of the day, these are businesses. So anyone who looks at the New York Knicks and says, oh, they have to go change things. They're going to do this. They're the most valuable franchise in the NBA, according to Forbes. Mm-hmm. They sell at every game. Uh, their merchandise has never been never been weaker, never been stronger than it is now. So it depends on how you define success. If you define it from a fan standpoint, Okay, I could understand why people would say since 1974 they haven't won a title. But if you're defining it from a business standpoint, which is the bottom line of most people, they're the most successful franchise in the NBA. Maybe the, maybe the joke is on the fan, not on the organization. So, um, you know, I, I when you get older, um, people say, well, do you root for teams? I said, no, I, I mean, I really root for people now. I, I have friends and we're coaches and administrators and senior officials, parents, you know, and I want to see them be successful. I don't really care as much about, um, um, you know, kind of what uniform they have on because they have, you know, skin, black skin, white skin, red skin. It doesn't matter to me. Um, I want to see them succeed because I've grown up with them and I know about them as people. I think that's part of it. I think, one of the things that we did a good job with the Knicks was building out a community relations program where the players were much more involved in, in programs that they cared about. And we helped grow a lot of brands. And that's really the, the, the defining moment. I think how you can impact thousands of lives again versus, you know, wins and losses sometimes. Now it would be great if, you know, Tom Thibodeau leads the Knicks to the NBA title and, and, you know, lives in immortality. 
Um, I don't know how important that is, though, in the business. I, I think it helps, but it doesn't really move the needle that much because the bar is already set pretty high when you're playing in Madison Square Garden. Um, so, you know, the, the margin of success is much narrower than if you're the Nets or the Jets or the Islanders. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have a huge upside that comes with winning a title. Ironically, with teams like the Knicks and the Giants and the Yankees, the upside isn't that much higher. So, you know, you can go back, yes, and point to missteps, but I think you can do that to a lot of organizations. I, you know, I've said this for years that if Jim Dolan was six foot five, blonde hair, uh, sat up in a chair and was always making jokes at people, I think people would accept it more, but that's not his personality. He's run the organization to where they are. They've, you know, split off the business twice now. Um, and, and by the way, they've done incredible things that sometimes they don't get credit for, mm-hmm. you know, concert for New Orleans, concert for 9-11, you know, right before the pandemic, they gave Madison Square Garden up so that 19,000 kids could come in and, and see To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, you know, all those things I think are invaluable. Um, I still think the fan experience when you go to the garden is still different from anywhere else. Um, I think there are other teams in New York that do a good job, but the, the garden experience, even now with the new, the new building is great or the renovated building mm-hmm. is amazing. Um, so again, it depends on how you judge things. You know, if you want to, if somebody wants to sit there and play junior general manager, well, they've had hall of fame general managers that still couldn't get it done. And Donnie Walsh and Isaiah Thomas and Steve Mills and uh, Scott Perry. So, um, you know, sometimes I think the, uh, it's it's a little bit of luck and, you know, injuries play into it. So many things play into it. You have to be, everything has to be going the right way. I mean, you know, if someone would have told you that the New York Giants, you know, would win the Super Bowl when a second string wide receiver would catch a ball against a helmet, you know, that's luck. You know, it's, it's being in a position to be successful, but that worked out for them. You know, um, you know, I still maintain, you know, when you look back with the Knicks, you know, and again, it's not my my job wasn't and isn't to talk about player personnel. But if Alan Alan Houston doesn't have the knee injury, or Antonio McDyess doesn't have the knee injury that he doesn't have, you're probably talking about a championship somewhere along the way for the Knicks. I mean, you know, they went to the finals in '99 when Alan was very young after they had made the Spreewell trade, and you know, lost to the Spurs, and people thought that was going to be on the way up. But some things just don't work out. You know, uh, that's the beauty of sport. I mean. Think about it. You know, the Boston Red Sox didn't win and the Chicago Cubs didn't win the World Series for 100 years. So, um, you know, we're not talking about that long a period of time. Um, but, you know, I, I think those things come and sometimes they come in an unexpected time. That's the beauty of fandom. And that's why people follow is because you never know what's going to happen in live sports. You really don't. And it's real reality TV, right? I don't understand why anybody, you know, teach his own, of course, but why are you watching the Kardashians when you can put on a Knicks well, game? You really don't know no, what you're going to see. The late David Stern, he, he always maintained that sports was the first reality TV. And he's right. He was always right. Um, you know, I got to spend a lot of time around David the last couple of years before he passed away in January. And, um, you know, the the vision that he had for the NBA at a time when people didn't really see it that has played out over time, you know, it was pretty amazing. So, um, you know, but, but I think, yeah, sports is the ultimate reality TV. It's still, and now going into the fall with no tape shows because of, of the inability to make TV shows, the only thing that's going to be on television is live sports. So, you know, for all those people that say baseball is hanging by a thread, we even hope that thread gets pulled in and that, and they will figure it out and keep playing through because, that's going to drive jobs for millions of people in various industries. You know, they, they make, you know, that, you know, there's always a kind of a trickle down effect that people sometimes don't realize. And they say, Oh, it's just sports. Well, if you're a vendor at city field and now you're not making money for a hundred nights this year, it's not just sports. So that's the thing that people sometimes forget. It is. There, there are so many satellite industries to sports that are connected and connected in, in good ways that, it's true. People are just like, oh, it's just, you know, there's a few people losing their jobs for the Mets and the Yankees or, or you know, the, the Brewers or, um, you know, n- name any of these hockey teams or, or basketball teams. But no, there's so many different industries. There's obviously the sponsorship. There's the event side. There's so many different things going on. And it's pretty disappointing 
when people kind of don't connect all those dots, because as you said, there's millions of people connected. And and I don't think it's really the job of most people to figure that out, but I'll never forget. uh, Someone told me a few years ago, the largest purchasers of carpet, the, the business that buys the most carpet in the world is what industry? Guess. Uh, I, I'm assuming it has to be something weird. Uh, restaurants. Nope. Guess. Uh, construction sounds too easy. Nope. I'll go with sports just because we're here. Nope. No. All right. You stumped me. The auto industry. Huh. There is carpeting in every car that's ever made. Mm-hmm. So when you think about, no one would think about if there's an auto strike or if people stop buying cars, that the carpeting industry could be tremendously impacted. And when you think about that, that's chemicals and production and shipping. And, you know, so, you know, you don't, you don't think about, you know, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on now in science with honeybees and, you know, people don't realize without honeybees, the world would stop to exist because of where they are in the food chain and in kind of the circle of life. So, um, I think we have a lot more empathy and think about things that are much bigger and how they, how, what you say impacts everybody else. And sadly that ties to people wearing masks today. I mean, I don't, I still don't understand why it's a big deal or a political issue, whether you put a piece of cloth on your face for two hours and it's, I'm sorry if it scratches your face, but if it saves one person's life, isn't that enough? So I like to think so. I wear my mask uh, when I go out and about and it's uh, I, I agree with you, but that's a, uh... That's a whole nother conversation, I think. But and, and and on that side of it, you know, right, with with the, you know, going attaching this to the media side a little bit more, the divisiveness of the media. Now, I don't want to talk about cable news because I personally believe cable news is poison. I don't care which side of the aisle you sit on, I don't care which channel you watch. I don't think it's good for your brain. I've seen what's happened to people that are close to me that just sit and watch that shit all day and it's terrible. Mm-hmm. But in terms of, you know, sports and, and kind of the narrowness of media has that, you know, in, in your opinion and, you know, you being in the industry so long, has it always been so very just, you know, very to the point, very direct and very narrow rather than people actually taking that step back and realizing like, okay, it's not just sports that are turning off. It's the vendors that are now expected. Uh, there's now the athletes that are in lesser sports because now the money's not trickling down as much. Has that always been there in the media or is that something that's just kind of come up with the age of social well, media? I, I think the money bullier made us more conscious of, of money, but you know, I mean, you go back as far as you want, want to go in sports and elite athletes like elite celebrities always got money. I mean, you know, Babe Ruth always made the joke. People said, you know, they'd always ask him, how does it feel to make more money than the president of the United States? And he'd say, I'm having a better year than he is. So, <laughs> so I, I think it's all relative. I, I think you just know more now, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, contracts certainly are bigger, um, and you know, the opportunities are more, but the risk and the reward is, is bigger now for athletes. So, um, and the money is bigger. So anytime the money is bigger, the, you know, the pie grows, the pieces get cut up in different ways. So, you know, I, I think there was always, um, you know, and I always thought the interesting thing about comparing sports and entertainment is Tom Cruise can get paid $40 million for a movie at nobody blinks an eye. Um, you know, uh, Yoana Cespedes signs a ridiculous contract, you know, for millions of dollars and everybody's up in arms. So, you know, it's all relative. And I think someone's going to write, and I always say to people, if someone's going to write you the check, are you not going to take it? So, so who are you to say that this guy's being overpaid when in reality you don't know him or her? And if someone was giving you the money, would you turn it down? So give me a break. I'm, I'm always on the side of the athletes. Um, now that Cespedes deal, of course, hindsight makes, you know, when he doesn't play for two years, it's unfortunate, but I wanted them to sign him. I was all about it, especially after that World Series run. The Mets made enough money in that World Series run to pay for his entire contract. I'm very confident in that. So I'm not really worried about the ownership group. Now, I'm not a fan of the ownership group, but that's, again, another conversation. Um, I guess moving off of your career's you know, with companies, as you said before, you were kind of pushed into that consulting pool a little bit. What is that like, especially in 2007, 2008? Obviously, we know there's little uncertainty in the economy and the, in, in the world, really, at that point. Was was that a factor into you getting pushed into that pool or, or was it no, just kind of um, uh, I, I still continue to look for whatever the next job could potentially be. It just really nothing. I mean, there, there were actually, there were a couple of jobs that came along that I was offered that I didn't take for various reasons. 
Um, some had to do with geography, some had to do with money, some had to do with just not being the right fit. Um, but um, every time I took a step, you know, it, it's like, you know, putting a puzzle together. All of a sudden there were more pieces and the pieces fit together. And, you know, you blink in 12, here I am literally the first week of August will be 12 years. So um, it's not easy. I mean, people say you work for yourself. When I go do my taxes, I've got 1099s for 25 or 30 people. So I'm not working for anybody. I'm working for all of them. Mm -hmm. um, you manage your time. Yes, but you have to know how to manage your time. That's really difficult to do. You have to know how to balance a budget. You have to know how to have enough in, in you know, when the banking enough, when times are good and when times are lean, like now, making sure that you have enough so that, you know, you're not struggling. That's not an easy thing to do for anybody. Um, you know, I was very fortunate, especially with my family. Uh, my wife has a tremendous head for finance and, and she knows how to kind of keep everything going while I, you know, kind of figure out how to make things. And, um, but I've also had tremendous people around me who've been supportive and helpful and uh, great friends. And, and I think, you know, having the, the right people around you to keep you going during the, the tough times and being able to lift them up during difficult times, you know, it sounds kind of human nature, but it's not. I mean, this, this can be, if you're a jerk, it comes back around. And I think something I said before is true. Um, whether you are going to uh, picking a university, going to grad school, starting your job, have a career, you know, it, it's what you do that defines those positions. It's not the other way around. And a lot of people get caught up in elite schools, you know, big jobs, big names surrounded with, you know, glitz and glamour. It's who you are and who you surround yourself with and what you make of what you have and how you literally figure out every day to move things forward. That's the way it works. It's not the other way around where, oh, I'm so-and-so, I'm the president of this team, or, you know, I'm the head coach here, or, you know, I'm the athletic director here. Well, that's great. Good for you. So what are you going to do with that now? And how are you going to influence a new group of people coming along who you can help in some way, shape, or form that you need to do right now? I think sometimes we forget about that. I love that. And it's so true, right? It's if, if you want something to be a certain way, you have the power to do that. Um, you know, depending on, on the position and what you're doing, you have the power to define what you're going to do in some capacity. And with you, you are independent. And, and as you said, you work for yourself, and I'm putting that in air quotes for everybody listening, but you're also working for 25 to 30 different people. And so I guess in the beginning, what was it like in the beginning, you know, this August of 2008, I think, if I'm not mistaken, you know, 12 years ago, what was it first like? And, and how, what were those emotions going through you? You know, that first day it was like, all right, well, it's Monday. And I, well, what am I going to do now? I was lucky because I got to wind down the IFL. Okay. So we had a little bit of a runway knowing that it was going to end. And I was around some very smart people. One was Jay Larkin, who has passed away, who, was the head of boxing at Showtime and then became the head of the IFL. And he was able to mentor me. And through some of the relationships that we had built up at the IFL, one was with USA Wrestling. So that was, yeah, that was the summer of 2008. So that was the Beijing Olympics. And one of the first small projects we picked up was helping uh, the Olympic wrestling team come in and do a tour in New York. Um, and then someone said to me, baseball, the International Baseball Federation is going to Beijing, but they need to figure out how to keep baseball in the Olympics. And uh, they're going to be looking for some PR help and go and talk to this guy. So some of the people who had mentored me or would push me into this said, go and talk to these people. And they led to positions over time. You know, there was one great one with baseball that lasted for two and a half years. And that, but I was able to pick up other pieces off of that. And it snowballed over time. Sometimes it doesn't happen. Um, a lot of times when people get into the consulting business, they take on one project, make a good amount of money. It ends, and then they have nothing to do. That's a difficult way to do business. You have to kind of have your hands in enough things. And frankly, like running an agency, you have to make sure that you don't have one piece of business where if that goes away, your business is wiped out. Um, you know, and I think in the, the retail business, that's a big problem today. In the restaurant business, it's a big problem today because your source of income is dependent on one thing, people coming into your establishment, no matter how good or how bad it is. Um you know, I was lucky enough 12 years ago to move things along where I was getting income from various places, but none were ridiculously high and none were perilously low. And you then you figure out how to balance your time across that. So 
And I think that's the most important part, really, the time management. As you said, you work for yourself, but in reality, you work for all these other businesses and, and being able to structure a day in, in the, the best way possible to make sure that you're getting everything that you need to done. And I've actually been in the position where I had one very big client and made a pretty good amount of money. And then unfortunately, that went away and so did all that money. So uh, thankfully, as you said, make sure you're you know in this game, in this consulting game, you have to make sure that you have some stuff set off to the side. So I'm doing just fine. I'm not too worried about it. But I've absolutely been in that position. And I need to now learn how to kind of have a couple smaller things going on. So that way, as you said, if one thing goes away, I don't lose it all, which is uh, pretty, pretty darn important. And I guess with, you know, over the years, as you said, you know, you've taken on new and new, new projects. What has it been like during these last six months, you know, with the the sports world essentially being on pause since March? I mean, obviously, we're still all talking about it all the time. But what has it been like personally for you and, you know, finding these stories and doing what you need to do for your clients in a space where, hey, most of us are really just stuck inside, not really able to do anything right now? Well, it's been good. I mean, I, I it hasn't been outstanding, but, you know, there's there hasn't been a shortage of work. Um you know, there's some, and frankly, there's been a bunch of new clients who I've listened to to help them reinvent their business, uh, and they've done extremely well. Um, so, you know, I, I don't really, I don't think I've lost a lot. I think that there's there's good storytelling still exists, and you know, I think we're all hoping that we were going to be coming out the other side of this at some point soon. I don't think that's going to be happening before next year. Um, but you know, at least for now, things are okay. Um, you know, I've had some great clients, obviously none really in the media business because no one's making films or TV shows right now. Um, but there's some stuff that will probably be coming in the fall. And, you know, I I stay in touch with a lot of people and I remain hopeful. And like I said, I'm not really – I don't have a huge shortage of business. It's just, you know, there, there's a couple sitting out there that have just been delayed, but that's fine. I mean, you know, and by the way, it also gives you time to kind of reflect and also – do some outreach because there's a lot of people who are worse off than I, than I am for sure. So, I mean, I lost a good friend of mine in April to this disease and, and uh, had another colleague of mine at Columbia who was on a respirator for 43 days and is now working his way back. Thank God. But um, you know, so it gives you time to kind of deal with a lot of other things that, you know, sometimes you're just too busy for. And I other than not being able to go into the city since March 9th, uh, or March, yeah, I guess March, March 3rd was the last time I was in the city. Um, that's, that still remains very strange to me. I can't wait to get back to school. I am going to teach on campus at Columbia in September. Um, you know, that's, that's really, I, I miss the people and the places more than the things by far. Yeah, so. I, uh, I haven't been into the city much uh, since March either, really zero times. And I miss it a lot. I miss the energy of just walking mm -hmm. through and those thousands and thousands of people that are walking around with you is uh, there's something about it. Unfortunately, I haven't had that feeling in a long time. And, and um, before we do hop over to Columbia for one second, I'm curious, you know, one of the, the things that you specialize in, if I may use that word is crisis communication. What is crisis communication and how many crises do you need to go through before you become really good at crisis communication? Cause I feel like that's not something you just do once and get good at it feel like there's a lot of moving parts and a lot of things that you have to understand before you really understand all the pieces to that puzzle. Life experience and listening to people around you. I mean, you, every time you think that there's a crisis, we just finished the third edition of the book and, you know, there's a lot of really interesting crisis things that we've learned over the last couple of years. I don't think a lot of it prepared you for um, what was going to be happening. Um, um, you know, in the last month. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, it's, it's pretty mm -hmm. impressive how, uh, what you're able to do with that. And I think it's, it's pretty darn cool. So yeah, let's just hop over to Columbia for uh, the, the last couple minutes of this. Uh, first, thanks. I think all teachers should get paid more money. It's kind of ridiculous, the argument against it. So I don't even like to entertain it. But what was a driving factor in wanting to become a uh, professor? I mean, considering it's one of the most prestigious universities in the country, but was becoming a professor a goal of yours for, for a while, or was it something that more or less fell into your lap a little bit? Um, a little bit of both. I taught before. I taught, did one-off classes at like the Learning Index. I created a class at NYU. Um, there was a guy named John Ginzali uh, and another gentleman named Lucas Rubin who were starting their graduate program at Columbia 12 years ago. It was the only program in the Ivy League. I knew John when he was – the um, associate publisher of the Sports Business Journal. He said, we want to do a communications class. Would you be interested in teaching it? I designed the curriculum. 
and I've been there for 12 years. So I also did a high school class for five years with Sports Business at Columbia. Uh, we didn't do it last year. We obviously didn't do it this year. I've taught high school programs at the School of the New York Times. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I like being able to bring people's other people's experiences in to help the people who are in the class. It's not about me talking. It's about them learning from other people. Uh, and I also like the entrepreneurship where I can learn from them as well. So, yeah, that, that was going to be my one question. Like, what is it like, you know, especially over this 12 year period, seeing all the technology advance, seeing media advance as you have with, you know, learning from these 20, 21, 22 year olds. How much fun is that for you to just have those dialogues, those discussions? And while you're teaching and they're getting, you know, what they're looking for in the value, you're also learning what you can then take back and, and utilize within your business. Um, it's great. I mean, that's that's the whole thing is you have to constantly keep learning. I um, I have 70-year-old, uh, six-year-old twin nieces. And one of the things we start our class with is something that I got from them. They turned around one day and said, I have no idea. So we start every class with, we go around the room and I say, tell me something that you learned. You had no idea what in the last week. And I think that's a tremendous way when you think about that every day, about what you learned and you know what you didn't know about yesterday, whether it's little trivia things or, you know, big picture things that impact your life and your health. I think that's tremendously valuable that you can figure out how to learn every day. So mine is, I had no idea that the pesky pole was named after a guy. It turns out, I thought it was just annoying, but it's actually named after a guy that was on the Red Sox and was in the Red Sox organization. If you live in, in New York, you know, the Outer Bridge Crossing, which leads you from New Jersey to Staten Island, is actually named after George Outer Bridge. It's not something about a bridge. So, um, you know, but that, that's kind of the – I love the ridiculous trivia stuff. I mean, I think that that's, that helps you kind of grow if you can say, I had no idea that, that that happened and, you know, we'll pick it up today. I so. love it. Good stuff, Joe. This has been absolutely fantastic. Where can everybody find you on Twitter? Because you're a pretty great follow. Yeah, it's at Joe Fav on Twitter. Uh, Joe Fav Nicks, sorry. Uh, uh, on Instagram. And then my website is joefavrito.com. You can find out about the book there. We do a newsletter you can sign up for that comes out every week. Um, you know, and if you have any other questions on LinkedIn too, you can hit me on LinkedIn. And I'll make sure to have links for all of those in the show notes. So thank you very much, uh, Joe. Sincerely, sincerely appreciate your time. Joe Favorito, independent sports, entertainment, and branding consultant, author, and professor at Columbia. Really appreciate it, Joe. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Have a good day.